So Merry Christmas, y'all. I love Advent. Don't you just love Advent? Even in 2020, the year of, I don't know what we're going to call this year, but even in this year of all years, we are not going to let that junk take away our Advent joy. I love Advent. I love Christmas. I love to see the new Starbucks cups every year. I love the decorations in people's house. I just love it. It's great. I hope you get to taste a little bit of the Advent joy as well this year. So this year, for our Advent series, we're taking a little line from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. In, the, in one of the last books, there's, there's this stable that you have to read the book to find out why, but it becomes a portal to another world. And someone looks in, and it's kind of like Doctor Who's the TARDIS. They're like, whoa, it's bigger on the inside. And Lucy, who is now kind of grown up at this point, looks at them and says, yeah, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world, referring to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. We just thought, what a great theme to grab for Christmas, how the birth of Jesus is bigger than our whole world. So last week, Marty did a great job introducing it and starting us out with looking at Jesus coming. And now this week, we're looking at Jesus came to free us. We're going to use Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. It's found on page 12 for you in the ESV translation. Uh, boys and girls, you also have your own translation there. But before we get to the text, I just want to kind of set it up so you understand what's going on here. I want to introduce you to a, a guy who's not a friend of mine. I never met him, and he passed away about 10 years ago. His name is Vernon Tott. Vernon Tott was too young to join the army in 1941. But after Pearl Harbor, he snuck into the military, as many people did, and became part of the 84th Infantry Division. Made his way across Europe, survived D-Day, survived several things. In 1945, he and his squad stumbled upon the Alam slave labor camp. He and his squad were confused. They didn't know what this was. It wasn't common knowledge. There were whispers about these things, but no one really knew. And the soldiers came upon this And the guards were gone. It was still shut. The prisoners didn't know who these people were. The Americans didn't know what to do. There was this weird confusion. And in a moment of inspiration, Vernon just kind of reached into his pack and he pulls out a baseball. All of a sudden, this shout went up from the camp, Americans, Americans, we're free. Yeah, isn't that great? They knew they had been liberated just by the sight of that baseball. And so too, Isaiah is going to show us today that Christmas is bigger than our whole world because Jesus coming as a child brings liberation, brings freedom, and it brings joy. So the people in Isaiah's day were stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Two very powerful nations had taken over. God's people at this time were living under a painful, painful tyranny with the promise of more suffering, more oppression on the way. And through the prophet Isaiah, God speaks a word of comfort and promise to them. The original hearers would have assumed the fulfillment was through some sort of king with a divine connection. They called this person the Messiah. The New Testament, in many, many places, explicitly grabs this promise and applies it to Jesus. And so it is ours to use at Advent. So if you will, would you please stand for the reading of God's word as we read this wonderful promise from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 6. <clears throat> the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. 
You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, it is our joy to come before you this morning, to come before your word, and to taste and see that you are good. We pray, Father, that even now, you would send your spirit, open this text up to us, that we might see Jesus, that we might taste the joy and freedom that Isaiah speaks of, Father, and that we might appropriate that into our own lives. So we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So Christmas is bigger than our whole world because Jesus came to rescue us. God himself came to rescue us as a person, to set us free from the power of, the dominion, the slavery of sin and death, to restore us to freedom, to restore us to health. And that gets us for our theme for today. I'd like to kind of give you a theme to kind of hang everything on. It's this today. Into our darkness, Jesus brings the light of joy and freedom. So let's just jump right into this. Jesus brings joy. So the people who were walking in darkness at this point were the people who had ignored him. Through God's prophet, he said, hey, you know what? Go left. And the people went, "Mm, no. And they went right. And God responds to their disobedience with grace. I love that. They'd blown it. They disobeyed. And yet God answers their self-inflicted darkness with kindness, with grace. You know, I became a Christian as a teenager. And one of the things that kind of helped me Over and over again, as I was sitting in church, my parents made me go to church. Parents, that's not a bad thing. My parents made me go to church. And as I was sitting under the ministry of the Word, I was surprised over and over again at the kindness of God. How so often my assumptions about God were challenged by actually looking at the Bible itself and seeing that God is kind to people who don't deserve it. And we see that in this passage right here. I mean, Ben Franklin tells us, you know, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, that's not the Bible. That's poor Richard's almanac, Ben Franklin. God helps those who help themselves. And I love how in this passage, Isaiah tells us, actually, when his people are suffering and lost in darkness, God starts putting the D-cells in his big mag light to shine light in their darkness. And this text shows us that this is way more profound than difficult life circumstances, although that applies. It's way more profound than difficult political realities, although it applies. It's not just that the people walk in darkness, but that the second half of that verse says, those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. The ESV doesn't catch it. Those of us in church world, if I quoted it in the King James Version, you'd immediately recognize it. It's they dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. That famous phrase from Psalm 23 about believers' confidence in God's grace. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is with me. And Isaiah says that happens right here in Jesus. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, light shines 
upon them. What an amazing promise that trapped in the darkness by our greatest enemy, our biggest fear, death. God shines the light of grace. The very grammar of these verses emphasize how strong and certain this promise of God's grace is. If you, if you notice, it kind of reading it, it's kind of weird. All the verbs are in past tense, signaling completed action, which we don't think about because, yeah, it's past, Jesus coming is past tense to us, and this, this promise is past tense. But for the people Isaiah is talking to, it was a future thing. So talking about something past that's in the future, it's showing the, that it's completed action. It's so certain he can talk about it as if it's already been done. They have seen a great light, it says. Light has shined on them. That's how certain it is. And we who have the New Testament as well, we have the further certainty of Jesus Christ himself grabbing multiple places in Isaiah and saying, he's talking about me. God's unstoppable grace comes to suffering, hurting, hopeless people in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, boys and girls here, I, wanna, I want you to make sure you're tracked with me. Let's look together at your translation there on page 12. Let's look at verse 2 together. It says this, it says, The people living in sadness and expecting to be hurt will be blessed by a flood of hope. See, students and kids, think about sometime maybe at night when the power goes out. Or maybe you just wake up in the middle of the night and it's just dark. And you don't turn the light on, you can't reach the light switch maybe. What do you do? You move really slowly through your room because you don't want to kick something. You don't want to hurt yourself. You're kind of a little unsure what's going on. Maybe if there's a thunderstorm outside, you're kind of scared, boys and girls. That's what's going on here. The people are walking through life scared about the next step. And is this going to be okay? They don't know. There's fear out there. There's pain out there. And things are dark and scary. Isaiah says that God himself turns on the lights by sending a rescuer. That's why Christmas is so special, because Jesus breaks into our darkness to bring us joy. And for all of us, let's look together at verse 3. It says this, now speaking directly to this child, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You've noticed I kind of underlined some things in that verse there for you, for those of you who can see the slides. Joy repeats two times. Then it says they rejoice before God. And then our glad is actually better translated as rejoice. This is quadruple joy. He's repetitively redundant many times in a row all over again to show how joyful they should be. And he says this is harvest festival joy. <sighs> okay. What's that, right? We don't do that. You know, due to the circumstances of churches we've served, we never really thought about it until we were on the road a couple weeks ago. We have not had the ability to leave where we were serving and travel to family at Thanksgiving for over a decade. This past Thanksgiving was one of the most joyful ones we've had as adults because we were together for the first time in like over 10 years because it was really hard for people to come and see us. And so we're having so much fun as a family, rejoicing to be together. It was fantastic. And that rejoicing and gladness, it was palpable. But as good as Thanksgiving was for us and probably was for you, it doesn't touch an ancient Near Eastern Harvest Festival. 
when groceries are prevalent, when overeating is common, we miss the joy of feasting at harvest time. In an agrarian community, especially an ancient agrarian community, it was a celebration that the community's not going to starve. All of our hard work we have put in since winter is going to work. We're going to survive the winter. Look at all the food we have. Let's rejoice together. It's birthday. It's Halloween candy and Thanksgiving, winning the Super Bowl, all wrapped up into one. Isaiah here says, instead of darkness, instead of sadness, instead of the difficulties and the fears, the present dread or the future fear, which holds us down, God brings to our life harvest festival joy. Now, students, kids here, I know you like Thanksgiving, but what comes next really gets you excited, doesn't it? What comes after Thanksgiving, right? Christmas! Don't you love the decorations on the house? Don't you love seeing the neighborhoods light up? Don't you love how you're, you're all of a sudden there's all this green stuff inside the house all of a sudden? It's great. Why are all the lights in our neighborhood? Do you know why your neighbors do that, boys and girls? Because they're happy, or they want to be happy at least. They want to spread joy, even if they don't really know why. Just last Sunday afternoon, my, uh, my daughter Isla and I were driving through Salisbury. And we, it, was, it was daytime, so we couldn't see the lights, but we saw all the decorations coming up on that main drag through Salisbury because there are like some like, seriously uber decorations on that road. It's amazing. You should go there if you haven't done it. And all of a sudden, she just makes this noise from the back seat. She goes, I'm so excited. It's like a funny feeling in my belly. I just love it this time of year. That's the joy Isaiah is talking about that God brings through Jesus. It's in your belly. You just love it. But there's even more than our emotional response, our substantial response to God's grace. There's even more. That little phrase in verse 3, notice it says, before you, addressing back to God himself. This is joy that leads to praise. This is joy that leads to the worship of God. It's so profound. It fuels our worship. Now, where does this joy come from? Why such joy? Well, the text answers, if you'll notice, beginning in verse 4, verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, all begin with the word for, giving the reasons for this joy. The last one, verse 6, is the one that's most significant, so I'm going to jump ahead and go there, and then we'll come back and cover verses 4 and 5. But the exuberant praise of verses 2 and 3, why? Look with me at verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God will accomplish their joy through a child, a son who will rule, and he won't just be called by these names. He will deserve these titles. That's a big deal. It's not just their names. So often we know this verse in church. We just rattle off these names. No, it's not that he'll be called by this. He deserves these titles. Look with me at the theology in this verse right here. Let's expand our appreciation of the beauty of Jesus. First of all, this child is born. He comes the way any other child does by birth. This is a human child. 
And he will be called a wonderful counselor. Literally, it's a wonder counselor or a miracle counselor. We could say a supernatural counselor. Their bad counselors had put them into suffering, but this one won't fall for those traps. He would be a supernaturally wise counselor. The next phrase, mighty God or warrior God, is one who defends his people. And note, this fully human child will deserve to be called God. Right here in Isaiah 9, we have God and human in one person already. You don't have to go to the New Testament to find that it's right there and it was expected. And this is a God who loves, a God who comforts as an eternal or everlasting father. And as the prince of peace, of shalom, of wholesomeness, of health. This is the one who brings healing and health to people. I mean, grasping for understanding, taxing human language, Isaiah kind of reaches for a summary statement. He says, the government, the dominion, the rule, the authority will be upon his shoulder. No matter what the situation is, no matter how big the issue, in our vernacular, we can say Jesus is on it. He's got this. He can handle it. How does Jesus have this? How does he bring such joy? That's what verses 4 and 5 tell us. Now let's look. Joy comes through liberation. Let's look together at verse 4. It says this. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So we have an unbearable burden. We have a staff beating on them. We have a tyrant oppressing them. And this coming child, Jesus, breaks all of that in a display of God's power. And I love how it says they're going to be beaten on the shoulder, but Jesus, the government, the rule will be upon his shoulder. He can take it. When you're being hurt, he can take it for you. And then you can't help, having read the New Testament, those of us who've been around church world for a while, those of us who know Jesus and who spend time in prayer and devotion to him, you can't help but when you hear yoke, think of that famous passage of Jesus, right? Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. I think we have it here for you, yeah. Where Jesus, with this passage in mind, I believe, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, I think Jesus in his humanity had this Isaiah passage on his mind. That all those in darkness, all those under an unbearable burden, Jesus breaks it and gives them rest. He's not saying, if you feel your burden, he's saying, you are burdened. Let me break it and take my burden upon you because my burden is light. Because the government, the rule, the dominion is on his shoulders. It doesn't have to rest on yours. You can be free to have a light burden. And then in verse 5, we see that all the weapons, all the military hardware, all the, all the results of a fierce battle, all of this stuff aligned against them, it says, will be burned as fuel for the fire. There's a, great, there's a great image in here. You know, so often we read the scriptures as if it's like this, you know, kind of, oh special book you know and it is but it's also a human book written by humans under inspiration and so sometimes there's um like sarcasm in the bible 
you know, because, because, you know, who do you think invented sarcasm? You know, read the Gospels, you'll see Jesus was bitingly sarcastic to people. Sometimes there's irony in the Bible. Sometimes there's um, a little kind of crassness in the Bible. And this is one of those areas that's a little kind of crassly ironic. By phrasing that little thing, burned as fuel for the fire, instead of just saying burned in the fire, there's a great image here we miss with that little word fuel. Wood was not plentiful at this point in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East in general. It was at a premium. Most people didn't burn wood. Instead, most people used dried animal dung as fuel. So the image is not just that, oh, all these weapons will be destroyed. The image is that all these scary things arrayed against you will become in your eyes as threatening as dung because of the work of this coming one. How's that for an Advent image? (laughs) Now, this is not just a history lesson, okay? We know this passage is ultimately about Jesus. So what really is Isaiah telling us that Jesus does for us? Well, the New Testament is unequivocal that the burden we live under, the tyrant that beats us, The tyrant that has weapons arrayed against us is the one-two punch of sin and death. And the Bible presents sin not as actions we do, but as a power that rules over us, a power that oppresses us, a power that in slavery drags us unwittingly towards death. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 15 tells us that Jesus Christ came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We are slaves to the fear of death without Jesus Christ. We are oppressed by that fear. We are prisoners who need a liberator. I didn't get to know him that well. I'm I was able to go see him about three or two or three times. Had the privilege of serving communion uh, to him with some men from the church. But uh, Dave Watson Sr. passed last night in the early hours of the morning. And a group of us gathered together at his home yesterday morning to pray with him, with his family, and to pray over him. And it's sad. I'm not going to get up here and be like, oh, death is nothing. Death stinks. It's an invader. It's not natural. Don't ever say to him, well, this is natural. No, it's not. It's unnatural. It's an invader. But the promise of Jesus Christ, and, you, and we t- those of us who were there yesterday morning, we got to taste it. We got to see that his family was sad. His family was fearful. But at the same time, his family was comforted because Dave knew Jesus. But more importantly, Jesus knew Dave. And they knew it. And so even as they were praying that he would not suffer, they were also kind of praying that maybe, maybe his time is soon. One of them said, I will not pray for God to take my father. I just can't do that. I get that. But the Lord was gracious and ended his suffering. That's the difference Jesus makes when it comes to death. All of his promises are yes and amen. So it's okay to be sad at death. It's absolutely okay. But the promises of Jesus are true. And the joy comes. Because death is no more. We've been set free from the fear of of death. The 
Boys and girls, would you look with me at your verse 4 as we see a picture of this. Here's what Isaiah says this coming child will do. He says, you will break open their prison doors. You will stop everyone from hurting them or making them sad. Kids, you ever play freeze tag? Is that still a thing? We used to play freeze tag. Is freeze tag still a thing? I hope it is. So in case you don't know, freeze tag is like if you're touched by it, you can't move until someone else sets you free by touching you, right? And the it person is running around trying to freeze as many people as possible. So if you're touched by the it and you're standing there, do you need one of your friends to come up here and go, hey, how you doing? You all right? Kind of lonely standing here playing freeze tag. I know. I'll stand here with you to keep you company. Is that what you want? You're like, no, touch me, set me free so I can start playing because this is boring. I don't want to do this. You need help. You need freedom. And that's Christmas, boys and girls. Jesus comes to touch you and set you free. Yes, he's there to comfort you, but not just to comfort you. Yes, he's there to keep you from being lonely, but so much more than that, he comes to set you free from these things. I want to go back to the opening story about the liberation of the concentration camps. You know, what Nazi Germany did to the Jewish nation in Europe was absolutely horrific. But sadly, it was not unique in history. And even more sad, it's not the most recent example of genocide. There are myriad occurrences, ancient and recent, of one group being labeled other by a different group and being oppressed or worse. And I bring that up because what the images of verses 4 through 5 are saying, what we have merit to apply and say, yes, this is what this is like. If the Bible is true, then all humanity are prisoners in a death camp. We are burdened by the power of sin. We are weighed down by the fear of death, and we are not free. And Christmas is bigger than our whole world because Jesus came into the world as a death camp liberator. What we needed was not an example to show us how to live. What we needed was rescue and liberation. And Jesus comes to bring freedom to those oppressed by the fear of death, prisoners under the power of sin. He was born into the death camp with us. It's why Christmas is so amazing. He then lived and died to liberate us from there. And in his resurrection, he broke that heavy yoke of death. He made sin and the fear of death as powerful as dung. The prison couldn't hold Jesus, and it cannot hold his people. He liberated us. That's the gospel promise available to you when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. And that is what Isaiah saw. It's like the people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Well, if you're here today, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you're still investigating, maybe you're here because you're visiting family, I want to go back to these titles for the Messiah in verse 6 and point out something. I want to point out that phrase, everlasting Father. The promise that this person would be an eternally loving father that would eternally look upon you with kindness. All the things that an ancient Near Eastern father, the authority and the affection put together, they would have heard in that, in that phrase. You know, and as, as post-Christianized America more and more re- resembles the theological, philosophical, and ethical melting pot that was ancient Rome where Christianity began, I want to point out something. In that ancient Roman melting pot where Christianity was birthed out of, 
there were a few common assumptions. One was that the gods didn't care about people. They were aloof and unconnected. And so they had to be cajoled and manipulated into helping through costly sacrifice. The other assumption, so gods didn't care, the other assumption was that nothing happens after death. You can look this up. Archaeologists have discovered that one of the most common inscriptions put on graves was, I would say it for you in Latin, I know we've got lots of Veritas people here, but I don't want to butcher it. So it says, it says, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That's it. Just a handful of Latin words. I didn't exist. Now I exist. I don't exist anymore. I don't care. That was their worldview. The gods don't care about us and nothing happens after you die. And these two assumptions led to the decadent selfishness to a lack of real concern for others that most historians say led to the decay and fall of Rome. They just kind of fell apart from the inside. I mean, sure, you cared about your family. You cared about your guild. You cared about your tribe. But you just didn't care about anything else much more beyond that. Historian Larry Hurtado in his recent book, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Isn't that like the best title ever? I'm going to say that again. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? In this, this historian points out that it socially and politically cost people a lot to become Christians. It made no earthly sense for them to become Christians in the first three centuries. And yet, tens of thousands did. Why? He says there's two main reasons. One, the promise of a loving God opposed to gods who don't care. And the promise of eternal life as opposed to the nihilism that existed. In other words... The fact that Isaiah's promise is true, that there was an everlasting father who cared for you now and who cares for you always, messed Rome up. The promised Messiah of Isaiah, Jesus of Nazareth, met the Romans right where they needed him. And over and over again in Roman records, we see that the authorities are dumbfounded at how much ancient Christians cared for each other. And they cared for non-Christians too. They cared for the public good. One Roman official, again, you can look this up, actually writes to another Roman official. They take care of their poor and our poor. What are we going to do with these Christians? See, Jesus changed them. Why am I taking you down this excursion to ancient Rome, right? Because as we see the rising divisions in our country, as we see the tribalism in our country, as we see the West kind of reverting back to the ancient paganism out of which it arose, is such a divisive culture, such a culture that doesn't care about others that much, really the culture you want? If the answer is no, and you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I would challenge you that you should want the gospel to be true because it brings about the people and culture that you deeply deeply want what jesus did for rome then jesus can do for america today end tribalism and build caring for others and it begins when people are changed by the love of god shown most profoundly in jesus the liberator the bringer of joy Uh, for all of us i want to end with this question do you have joy deep rich, thick, harvest festival joy. Because that's what's offered to you today. Christmas is bigger than our whole world because into our darkness and slavery, Jesus brings the joy of liberation and freedom.
Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you how you can prick our hearts with familiar texts, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this picture of Jesus as so strong, as such a bringer of freedom and joy. Father, we pray that you would help us all to taste that joy. Would you do your work of salvation even now as you have promised, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, would you draw all people to him? And Father, we pray that once again you would show us through all the beautiful trinkets and, and customs of Advent how profoundly Jesus loves us, how profoundly you love us and want to bring us joy in Jesus. Lord, we pray you would do all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.